Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fastman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Residents of Jackson, the capital of Mississippi, are without safe drinking water indefinitely. The tale of how that happened is sad, but even more sadly, not unusual. Some 21 million people in the world's richest country lack access to reliable water. And the taxonomy of finance types has always included chartists, the kind of thinkers who aim to divine the future from nothing more than charts of market moves. Their recent rise is not a sign of their deep insights, it's a sign of widespread unease. But first... For weeks, a much-trailed counteroffensive by Ukrainian forces in the country's south only slowly materialized. The narrative about the country's east had become one of stalemate, a war of attrition. All that has changed in just the past few days. Further and further east each time, reports emerge of Ukrainian soldiers recovering territory. In Balaklia, they tore down a Russian banner on a billboard revealing a Ukrainian poem. Video after video shows Ukrainian flags flying. Just a few kilometers from the border, one district mayor cut the lowered Russian flag in two with a knife. On Saturday, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, said the Russian army is these days displaying its greatest skill, showing its back. It's a stunning turnaround, one that has the rapt attention not just of Ukraine's people, but also of Russia's war hawks and Western backers of Ukraine. This is the most significant moment in the war since Russia's retreat from northern Ukraine from the Kiev suburbs back in March. Shashank Joshi is our defense editor. It's not necessarily the beginning of a Russian collapse, but I think it is an incredible moment that signifies the hollowness of Russia's army, the momentum on Ukraine's side, and the implications are not just military in terms of seizing important towns, pushing the front lines back, but they're also very much political and symbolic in what Ukraine has shown itself capable of doing. And how does this figure into the long-trailed counteroffensive about which we've spoken several times before? Well, Jason, if you think about the fronts in the Ukraine war, there are basically three of them. There is the northeast, Kharkiv province. There is the east, Donbass, which was the the focus of Russia's efforts. And there was the south in Kherson province and neighboring provinces like Zaporizhia, the home of the nuclear reactor that's under Russian occupation. Now, as we had spoken about, we had all expected the big offensive to come in Kherson in the south. And indeed, it did at the end of August. But what happened is Russia, anticipating that offensive, 
had moved some of its best forces, indeed a lot of its forces, to the south to reinforce its lines there. And that opened up some gaps. Ukraine spotted those gaps and it ruthlessly exploited them. So when it sent a relatively small force to attack a city called Balaklia, which has been in Russian hands since March, it was encircled extremely fast. And then the Ukrainian advance made incredibly fast progress from there. They captured Kupiansk, which was a really significant logistics hub, a rail hub for the Russian war effort. And last week, that was about 60 kilometers behind the front lines. And then they did something even more remarkable, which was drive south and capture Izium, which is a really important town for military logistics further south in the Luhansk province, which is one half of Donbass and a really significant base for Russia. If you look at it all in all, Ukraine has now regained control of the latest estimate is perhaps upward of 8,000 square kilometers of territory, you know, an area the size of Cyprus. Russia in just a week has lost more territory than they gained in months of incredibly costly fighting over the summer. But how were they able to do that, to make these enormous gains? Was it just that Russia was distracted with Kherson? It was partly that distraction. I think there's also other factors here, which is Western weapons played a very significant role. What Ukrainian officials have told us and told our colleagues, Jason, in Ukraine, is that success was contingent on American-supplied weapons, including American-supplied anti-radiation missiles, which take out Russian air defense radar. And it was critical also to have German anti-aircraft guns that were able to clear some of the airspace, which meant that the Russians didn't have air superiority. So Western weapons have been absolutely vital, both to this offensive in Kharkiv and to the one that is grinding on in the south in Kherson. And so what's been the Russian response to this evident rout? Well, the Russians threw reserves at the problem, but they didn't get there in time. And the fact is that they haven't got much left in the tank. They don't have much to plug these holes. What we have seen in terms of response, I think, is this remarkable upsurge in anger, not from Russian liberals, of whom there are not many vocal ones left at the moment because they'll end up in jail, but from Russian nationalists. In other words, those who want Vladimir Putin to prosecute the war even more aggressively. They were absolutely stunned. They were furious. They accused Russia's high command of treason. In fact, Igor Gherkin, who's a former Russian commander in Donbass, talked about this as a potential strategic defeat and said this could turn into a complete rout. Russia's defense ministry didn't say very much. It just said it was regrouping its forces, which is a kind of comical way of saying that they're in chaotic retreat. But we didn't see any response from Vladimir Putin in a big public speech on Saturday night. In fact, I think he opened a big Ferris wheel in Moscow. And one of my favorite comments from Russian nationalist bloggers was that the front lines would now be visible from the top of the Ferris wheel. But Putin himself didn't say anything. What we have seen, however, on Sunday night is some quite intense attacks on Ukrainian power stations in Kharkiv, in other places that have turned the power out, at least temporarily. So from what it looks like, the Russians are responding with a sense of revenge by taking out civilian infrastructure in parts of Ukraine. And so what about the situation on the ground now? What next for Ukraine? Well, Russia is retreating from Kharkiv province. Ukraine is still making some small gains. But I don't think this is necessarily a general collapse of the Russian army. It does weaken their positions in Donbass because their logistics effort is now so deeply messed up. And towns, cities, places that they had taken over the summer are now at risk. 
What I certainly think it means is the Russian army is no longer going to be able to fulfill the central aim of this operation, as declared by Vladimir Putin, which was the so-called liberation of Donbass. The liberation of Donbass is now beyond them. That's the real significance of this route, which is that they can no longer take the rest of Donetsk province that wasn't in their hands, the cities of Slovyansk, the city of Kramatorsk. It could still lead to a wider disintegration in Russian positions in Luhansk to the south, but I think it's too early to say that. What we do know is that this reflects a big structural problem in Russia's army, which is it doesn't have the manpower it needs. It has been scraping together reserve battalions. The battalions it does have are in incredibly poor shape. They're under strength. They're not being rotated in and off the front lines, and so they're completely exhausted compared to the Ukrainian positions. And so the overall situation is that this is an unwinnable war for Russia. That still means Ukraine has to expel the Russians from large chunks of Ukrainian soil. But nonetheless, I think this really marks the end of Russian offensive operations for the foreseeable future. And it opens up opportunities for Ukraine to apply the same kind of targeted surprise pressure on weak points in the Russian front lines elsewhere. They're not necessarily going to fall and disintegrate as quickly as these ones did. But I think Ukraine has shown that it can be done. Do you think that leaders in Russia, war hawks in Russia, see all of this? I think that the leadership in Russia understands this isn't going terribly well for them, but they don't have many options. And there are not many options for escalation. Sure, Putin can use more missiles against Ukrainian cities. That's not going to change the front lines. And in fact, we've seen from previous conflicts, things like the Blitz, how that can really stiffen the spines of a local population. And in terms of his other options, the big one is, will he declare a formal state of war in Russia? Will he mobilize and conscript Russian manpower? That would take a very long time. It would take months, possibly a year to do that in full. And even then, there's no guarantee that the quality of infantry would be up to the task. We have seen how morale makes a huge difference. Ukrainian troops are liberating their hometowns and their cities. In fact, anyone who's seen some of the videos from the past week of Ukrainian civilians weeping, greeting Ukrainian troops as they march through these liberated towns, offering them pancakes, offering them shelter, will understand that huge spiritual morale advantage that the Ukrainians enjoy and the Russians don't. So I think this is a really significant setback for the Russians. But more importantly, it just reveals the incredibly poor state of their options at this stage in the conflict. And what about the wider international view here? What do you think the international community will will make of this turn of events? We've discussed the military consequences, the territorial consequences, liberating thousands of square kilometers. I think even more important, Jason, are the international diplomatic consequences, because what this shows is that Ukraine can win. What this says to countries like France, Germany, the United States, the United Kingdom, is that the weapons they are providing Ukraine are making a difference. And that's the message that Ukraine is now sending. They are saying, we've shown we can do this. Your weapons have helped us do it. Now give us more. Let us finish the job. And in fact, we saw just such an appeal from Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, over this weekend. What Kuleba is saying, what Ukraine is saying, is that this war is winnable. Shashank, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you as always, Jason.
the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, good morning. Um, I'm a, a journalist with The Economist. Is that right if I just take a walk through? All right, thanks. I recently went to the Metro Center in Jackson, Mississippi. Tamara Jokes Bohr is The Economist's U.S. policy correspondent. The Metro Center is an abandoned mall. At one point, it was a vibrant shopping center, but now it's completely vacant. The car park has weeds a foot high, and some potholes could have fit my whole body. But the day that I visited, it had actually come to life. We got, we said, we got here on Wednesday. Okay. And we set up we set up shop here yesterday. There was literally nothing in this parking lot but asphalt. Wow. I spoke to First Sergeant Shane Henderson from the National Guard. He explained to me what I was seeing. When I first drove up to the mall, I saw a long line of cars snaking through the parking lot. Each driver was being given two cases of bottled water and in some instances hand sanitizer. We had 2,400 cars that came through here yesterday, and we've got over half, we had over half that over an hour ago. Oh, wow. So people are really speeding through here now, and uh, we got a little bit better system. The reason I was in Jackson? For over a week, residents haven't had access to clean tap water. Many in the city have been unable to bathe, wash clothes, or even flush their toilets. But what I learned was that this is far from an isolated incident. It's just one example of America's creaking water infrastructure. We'll get to that bigger picture in a minute. But but first off, give us the backstory here. What's been going on in Jackson? Yeah, so on August 29th, a huge rainstorm caused the Pearl River, which runs through Jackson, to overflow. This storm took out the city's main water treatment plant, where pumps had already been failing and struggling to provide for the residents. Because the floods reduced the pressure of the water flowing throughout the whole system, the backup plant was not able to keep up with demand. So many residents were left without water, and some who did have water were left with brown, dirty water. Mississippi declared a state of emergency the following day, and it was swiftly approved by President Joe Biden, which allowed the federal government to send funds to Jackson, as well as send hundreds of National Guard troops to support the effort. Tamara, the latest I'm seeing from following this story from here, the water supply in Jackson is back up and running. The pressure is back, but the water coming through to people's homes is is brown. It's undrinkable. This crisis is still very much ongoing. How are people getting through this? A lot of people are helping. This has really become a community effort. We are seeing nonprofits. We are seeing churches. And we are seeing individuals come together to help this city in need. I spoke with two people who work for Operation Shoestring. It's a nonprofit that helps families. They told me about how people are living through the crisis. It's um, very difficult because a lot of them them are at low pressure 
uh, water is either dripping or it's running really low. And we had a few that had no water at all. And so um, because they have smaller children in the families, they're either having to um, hand their children over to a family member who does not live currently within the Jackson area, or they're having to take themselves with their family to move over outside of the area. Um, it's starting to pose more challenges than expected uh considering child care also the needs of school right now some of the work they've been doing in addition to providing after school support and other activities is handing out water filters to families one thing i heard when speaking with them is that they were already on alert for something like this there had been a boil water warning issued earlier in the year and there have been ongoing problems with jackson's water infrastructure for years what kind of problems well I actually spoke to the mayor, Shokwe Antar Lumumba, about this. So in your words, could you tell us why did this happen in Jackson? Uh, Well, this is um, the result of uh, a set of accumulated challenges, a lack of appropriate investment in the city for for more than 30 years. Uh, He told me that there have been issues with the water supply for a really long time. You know, whether it's the treatment facility, whether it's pipes that, that rupture uh, because there's an underinvestment in that, uh, there have been different forms of this challenge uh, for decades now in Jackson. Uh, I can just share. We got into specifics. He gave me an update of how the plant is getting on. There are multiple points of failure in our water treatment facility. Uh, there are pumps that go down. Uh, there are raw water screens that go down. There's a UV light on its last leg. There are clear tracks that need uh, repair. There are gauges that are inoperable. Uh, and this is from a layperson who has had to become familiar with all of these things uh, just because there, there are so many challenges there, not to mention the age and decay of those systems. What is your response when someone says that it's because you didn't try hard enough? Yeah. Well, you know, in this position, I've become familiar at, you know, uh, people's uh lack of full information and understanding as to what the capacity of the mayor is, right? Uh, It's not within uh, my sphere of influence to do a billion dollar makeover of a water treatment facility. This is going to require federal support. Uh, That is is just the, the sum total of it. And Tamara, at the start of our conversation, you said this problem is not unique to Jackson. This seems to be driving at that point. There's been a, there's been a lack of federal support more broadly, right? Correct. I spoke with Mami Hara of the U.S. Water Alliance, a nonprofit group that focuses on providing clean water to Americans. And she says that Jackson is just the beginning. This crisis in Jackson stems from a broader failure to ensure equal access to water across the country. Part of the problem is that many water systems were built over a century ago for very different conditions, including climate. And uh, certainly no one then was planning for the very volatile and disruptive climate that we have now. And, you know, as pipes, plants and pumps reach the end of their lifespan, they need to be replaced and also at the same time designed for a changing world. Um, But water infrastructure, you know, for all types of water infrastructure for drinking water, wastewater, and stormwater. They've been underinvested in for the past 45 years. So this water crisis is currently happening in Jackson, and it's getting a lot of media attention. But nearly 21 million Americans drank water from systems that did not meet safety standards in 2015. 
And while getting clean water is important, many people in the country don't even have access to a shower. Over 1 million Americans do not have complete indoor plumbing in their homes. Nearly half of those without indoor plumbing live in cities, and they are more likely to be non-white and poor, just like we're seeing in Jackson. And Tamara, having looked into the situation firsthand, what do you think it's going to take to get a handle on these issues? What would you suggest? So first, we actually don't have great national data that really helps us understand this problem. So first, we have to make sure that the Census Bureau, for example, is collecting, analyzing, and providing data on how many Americans have access to water, period, but also clean water. Second, we have to let the public know what's going on. I know I was surprised when I heard how many Americans in this country do not have access to clean water and how many lack indoor plumbing. Third, we're going to need more federal investment. The Biden administration is moving this forward with $55 billion allocated toward water infrastructure in the country, but much more will be needed to deal with the aging pipes and plants. Without it, we are going to see many more people suffering particularly as climate change increases storm intensity and wrecks havoc on our old infrastructure. All right, Tamara, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. When markets move, many people, investors, analysts, journalists, and others would look to news events to explain what's happened. Maybe it was a speech by a central banker or a big industry takeover. Perhaps a regulator took a strong interest in a certain business or sector. But there are some people who believe that the movement of stocks, bonds, and currencies can be divined by more esoteric means. There is a small but dedicated cult of chartists or technical analysts that exist in financial markets. Alice Fullwood is our Wall Street correspondent. And they are convinced that the prices of stocks, bonds, currencies, any kind of asset can be divined by the making and interpreting of charts. So there are lots of videos on YouTube dedicated to this style of analysis. People apply it to things like crypto now as well. And their methods of building these charts are many, varied and quite wackily named. That's too tempting not to follow up on. Hit me with some of those names. So, I mean, there are so many good ones to pick from. One is the Death Cross. And then we will talk about the Death Cross. Golden crosses and death crosses sound like dramatic, fortune-altering moments from a medieval-themed board game. There's a lot of talk um, about a death cross signal when it comes... Which is when a specific short-term moving average of a price, so, you know, an average of the price through time, falls below a a long-term moving average, and the death cross, as its name suggests, is very bad news. There are Fibonacci retracement levels, and these are based on the Fibonacci number sequence, and in particular, the golden ratio between those numbers. And they rely on the idea that as a price is going up, it will fall back to a ratio that can be divined from the Fibonacci number sequence, like a 61.8% drop or the the golden ratio drop. Another favourite of mine from back in the day when I was a foreign exchange trader is the Ichimoku cloud, which is beloved in particular by uh, Japanese traders. I'm sorry, the what now? 
Yes, this cloud is constructed by, and bear with me, shading the area between two averages of high and low prices over the past week, the past month, and the past two months. And once you've sort of drawn these two lines, you can shade the difference between them. And any price that is above the cloud is supposed to be auspicious, or one below it is ominous. These methods and new methods come out all the time. They've been around for decades. And as I said, they have a sort of very dedicated following. I think it's very sweet that traders have time to color during their workday, but but why are they being talked about now? <laughs> yeah, so while they sound sort of quite mad, these methods in particular have attracted attention recently because of how the S&P 500, which is the leading index of American stocks, has wiggled around. So it's been a bad year for stocks. The S&P 500 fell to a low of 3,637 on June 17th. And after that, it began to climb. And it climbed for about two months until it peaked at a high of 4,325 points, which was basically as close as it could get to its 200-day moving average of 4,326. And the 200-day moving average is one of these big, supposedly critical technical levels. So whenever you have an asset that's fallen in price a lot but is rising again. It's in theory supposed to meet resistance at these moving average levels. And so to this sort of cult of chartists, it's very concerning when an asset fails to break through that resistance barrier like the S&P 500 seemed to struggle to do. You know, it's an indication that this wasn't a real bull market rally. You know, things haven't really turned around. It was just uh, a sort of bounce before stocks resume their downward trend. And it does look like stocks have resumed their downward trend. They've slumped by serious amounts since August 16th. So, you know, there's the old saying that even a stopped clock is right twice a day. I just wonder how much attention should we be paying to any of this? Although these techniques are wackily named, a lot of people say that you can boil technical analysis or chartism down to essentially just trend following or momentum, as it's often called. And a lot of very serious investors like the big quantitative hedge funds, who are hedge funds that use algorithms to analyse markets and trade on the basis of that, they all use some version of trend following to guide those algorithms. Often the way this is implemented is a bit more sophisticated. They might combine looking at trends or looking at momentum in share prices with other metrics that they think are important for the value of stocks, like whether they look cheap relative to some metric or whether they're a sort of high quality firm that doesn't have much debt. And then if it's one of those firms and they've also recently risen in price, then maybe that's a sort of buy signal for those algorithms. Why do you think some people are attracted to this idea of chartism, to looking at stocks that way? So the ideas behind chartism or technical analysis are very sort of rooted in investor psychology. And one of the things that I think is interesting is the technical analysts and the chartists are peddling their charts all of the time through bull and bear markets and through rocky moments like now. But you don't really see their style of analysis raise its head into the general conversation among investors at times where there are really strong fundamental reasons why stocks are moving. So for the most of this year, it's been a downtrend for stocks because you've had a lot of big fundamental reasons why stocks have been suffering. High inflation, rates are going up, people getting worried about recession, etc., And now that we're entering this sort of fuzzier grey zone in stock prices, people are more willing to look at other things that might tell them what's going to happen next. So you're seeing sort of a bit more attention being paid to technical analysis at the moment than normal. My joke in the piece of the paper is that uh, we should build a a technical indicator that looks at how much people are looking at technical analysis, (laughs) because it would indicate that, you know, people are really confused about what's going on in markets. (laughs) I like it. All right, Alice, thanks so much for joining us today. 
Thank you, John. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.